Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome to the DFD or Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. Here, we want to discuss all things dairy farming. This podcast is about getting information out that is going to help your dairy operations succeed. Our goal is to bring you timely information on beneficial topics. We plan to bring in some of the top names from the industry to share on the topics they have studied and more importantly, are passionate about sharing with you, the listeners. I hope everyone enjoys this week's episode and thanks for listening. Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. Uh, We are excited to see how you guys are making out this week. Uh, I know out in my area, we are probably halfway through silage, if not maybe 60-70% of the way through. Um, I know Keith is going to have some uh, numbers for us on what uh, the Twitter feed is showing us as far as who's done and uh, what that's showing us. So we'll get to that a little bit later on here. Um, Keith, do you want to just say hi from your area there and we'll keep going here? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, great to be back on here and uh, excited to uh, meet Andrew this afternoon. So, so as Keith said there, we have uh, Drew Thompson on from Pride Seed. Uh, Drew, do you want to just say hi there to everyone? Yeah, thanks very much for the uh, for the opportunity, and, and very interested to hear uh, you know what you guys are seeing because the area I travel, kind of the Niagara Peninsula, over to um, say a little bit west of London, up to say Highway Seven. Uh, I, I would agree we're probably on the good side of, of halfway done silage, but uh, that little kiss of frost on the weekend is uh, put a little bit of a, a burr in everyone's saddle and getting them to hurry up. I know I was talking to a custom operator here just before lunch, and that's his thing is uh, everybody wants it done right now. So luckily enough, he's got uh, two choppers running right now. He was actually doing his own stuff today. So trying to keep him, his wife happy and keep uh, keep the rest of his clients happy too. So This is the time when, when uh, you start running on coffee and not on sleep. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty used to that already. So, <laughs> No, that's good. So yeah, for those of you that don't know, I guess, Drew, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of your background there? So why don't you start by telling us uh, where uh, home is for you, I guess. Yeah, sure. I'm uh, in, in southern Haldeman County, just outside of uh, Cayuga. Uh, my in-laws have a, have a dairy operation, and I guess you'd call what we are, we're the square hundred. So the dairy farms on the, uh, the south hundred, the concession to the south, where the, uh, you know, is of all farmers, we're, we're still called the, the name that it was 100 years ago. So we're at the Zintel place. Um, but um, yeah, so we're in Haldeman, the land of the, the the blue clay and tough soil and and we had a tough growing season this year not a lot of rain so silage has been going pretty heavy consistently for the last couple weeks and that was not necessarily by choice that was just that was what mother nature gave us Um, but a bit of my background I've been working with pride seed now for I guess four years as the uh, area agronomist helping with some technical support and and that fun stuff prior to that I worked in uh, agrochem research so I've got a bit of uh, information and, and knowledge in that world and then I guess on the weekends or whenever my wife is is on call she's a large animal vet a dairy vet so I get to pretend that I'm a cowboy and, and whenever there's uh, some help needed you know rolling a cow up to stitch up or, or uh, twisted stomachs or whatnot I, I get to play that so I know a little bit about the dairy world probably just enough to be dangerous that's so, kind of how we are with crops so <laughs> <laughs> that's why we bring in the experts so and then just a little bit of your background there as well. Like, did you uh, get a degree from any of the schools locally or, or any uh, egg background there as far as schooling goes? Yeah, so I did both my, uh, my undergrad at Guelph and then I also did my, uh, my master's degree at Guelph. So uh, I guess I'm a, I'm a six-year Guelph veteran. 
So, Drew, to switch it up a little bit this week, we thought we would start uh, with having a little bit of fun, and maybe we'll continue this with some of our guests moving forward. But uh, just wondered if you could uh, share with us maybe one or two or maybe a few funny or strange things you've seen in your egg career. So what uh, what's kind of stood out in your years in the business, uh, something that's kind of strange or, or out of the ordinary there? With pride seeds, you know, predominantly we're working with uh, corn and soybeans, a little bit into the forage crops as well. But uh, as an agronomist, we get to wear the hat and, and, and learn a lot of crops. And, and uh, I think one of the ones that just baffles me to no end is, is this transition into to marijuana as a as a crop and and you know that was never my bag and that's fine no uh, not making any opinions of anybody but uh, you know you remember that kid in high school that would take out the corner of his dad's cornfield and he could uh, pretty much supply the high school for the next couple of years and, and you drive around now and there's acres upon acres of greenhouses and whatnot so that's one of the things that I find the funniest and, and I guess on that you know when I'm out walking fields you still find guys doing that pulling a few plants out and putting a couple extra plants <laughs> Yeah, I remember, uh, oh, this has been a few years back, just a custom operator. They were so proud to find someone in the field. They, uh, they jammed it in the, in the lights on the forage harvester, and they were waving it around like a flag. So I thought that was pretty good. We're just curious to see what everybody's seeing out there. And um, I guess to kind of start and get right to the meat of it here uh, today, I thought we would start with um, what are kind of five things every farmer should be doing to make the best silage possible for next year? As we, as we said there before, most guys are kind of wrapping up or uh, the frost is dictated when they're, they're going, so they don't have much choice to what they can do now. But I thought if you could maybe take us from planting to packing, what guys should be thinking about. Um, we also know guys are starting to think a lot about what the seed they're going to be putting in the, in the ground uh, next spring. Uh, so what, uh, what would you say are five key things guys should be doing? Yeah, yeah, so that's a great question. And, and, you know, so as a seed guy, I'm obviously going to start with, with seed. And, and one of the things we saw this year was we had some pretty nice planting conditions early in the season. And, and a lot of guys took advantage of that. And then, you know, afterwards, we got hit with snow. If you guys remember Mother's Day, you know, it was snowing or, and then the, the kind of the Monday, Tuesday afterward, it went down. Some of those nighttime temperatures were down to minus four, minus five. And boy, that really kicked the uh, the seeds in the backside. And so one of the things that we're doing, uh, you know, as, as a seed company, but I think the industry as a whole, is we're evaluating what we call spring vigor. And a lot of the times people think, ah, spring vigor, that's just the marketing team making stuff up. And eh, maybe there's a degree of truth to that. But what we're realizing is, is that there is big, big differences between the seeds genetically, you know, under the same brand or across brands or whatever you want to look at it. Some of them are better planted early than others. And, and to me, that's a big, big thing that we have to, to list. Because if you took something that didn't have great spring vigor and you put it into cold soil, you're not really happy with your crop. And when I look at making silage for dairy, I, like, I want the absolute best corn on that farm put into the bunk. I don't want, you know, ah, that's a you know, tough piece of ground or the corn that looks like hell I will put that in the silo no way I want the best because you got to deal with that the entire winter and into the next fall before you get fresh stuff so I think that's a big one for me that we learned this year was you know have those conversations with with your seed rep and, and sort of say hey if I've got some ground that I can get on early because again you think in 2019 most of the corn we planted was in June you don't worry about spring bigger in June Right. But if we get any sort of normal conditions going forward, we really need to make sure that we understand how our, our seeds are going to handle that, uh, that, that cold soil if we get it. So that's my, my number one. 
Number two is on population management of, of our, our seeding rate. And it's interesting because again, across different genetics, there's some varieties that need more seed to, to maximize their potential. There are others that you know, have a little bit more flex in their ability to make that ear get bigger or smaller. And as a result of that, you know, you really need to ask those questions. You know, sometimes we're the dirty seed salesmen. We want you to push lots and lots of seeding rate, but there's other genetics that we sort of say, hey, you know, you, you back this off. And, and so this is a conversation I love to have with, with dairy farmers because, you know, what's your limitation? And if you've got a guy that has a limitation of bunk space, he only has so much area to put up feed, then you know what? I want you to drop your seeding rate back a bit so that we get a little bit more grain, a little bit higher energy in that so that you don't have to feed as much silage overall, um, you know, to maintain production and, and that sort of thing. So I think that's one that, you know, we probably don't have enough conversations around is, is that population management. And, and I think that really does show up as we evaluate the different hybrids because it can vary, you know, the kind of the sweet spot, if you will, can, can vary by as much as four to 5,000 uh, seeds per acre of what's kind of ideal for uh, optimal performance. And so not only is that a big cost difference, but, that can make a big difference in the, the performance of the, uh, the hybrid. Yeah, I was going to say, so if we go back to, like you're talking about spring bigger, is that kind of like emergence? Because what I'm seeing now, like when we were walking silage fields, is that there's a lot of variability in the corn finishing up. Now the frost took care of that for us in a lot of places, but, you know, we're looking at one plant beside the next plant, one's at full dent, the other one's at half dent. And that's exactly it. And so basically what the research has found is that Across genetics, there's kind of a magical temperature that will cause damage. So if you planted a variety that had really good spring vigor and the temperature got quite cool, you're probably not going to see a lot of variability. But if you had a variety that was a little bit softer on its spring vigor score, and so normally what happens, if, if you suck up the water, you imbibe it, you start the germination process. If you suck up cold water, you're not seeing that seed. That's just, you know, basic, easy. That's why we can't plant in the cold soil. But what happened this year was the cold came after it had started the germination process. And so if you had one of those varieties that was a little bit more sensitive and that cold dropped below its magic number and pick a number, right? You know, I'm going to talk in Fahrenheit. It gives me a broader scale. Those really, really good spring bigger varieties, boy, it could go down to low 40s. Those softer varieties, if it got much below 48, then, then you were going to see that. And what it did, if you dug up any of those seeds, is it caused it to do that corkscrew and that twisting. And so rather than kind of growing straight up for two inches to emerge, some of these plants put a corkscrew and they grew three inches. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're basically three days behind your neighbor. And that's why you're seeing that variability, both in terms of uh, moisture, but probably more so in, in, in just how big the cob is. Because as soon as you got a, a plant that emerges later than its neighbor, it's going to try to play catch up. And when it does that, it, it puts all its resources into growing the same height as its neighbor. So it doesn't put as much roots. You don't have as much roots. You don't make as big of a cob. Yeah. So I think, was that part of the problem? I, I think it was 2018. We had a lot of toxins around there. I know some people talked about, uh, and I know there's some work done on, uh, on emergence and making sure that when that corn does emerge, it emerges as equally as possible rather than, you know, over a two to three day stretch. So that's a great, great, great point, because basically what happened in 2018, the toxins and, and the molds that we got were as a result of what's called ear channel infection. And so the silks, once they have done their job of carrying the pollen down to the kernel, they disattach, and, and, but they're still basically full of sugar water. And so if you're a disease spore and you land on that, that's basically your access into the plant. 
as soon as those silts dry up, that, that doorway is closed. But if you've got uneven emergence, and so rather than having your silks in, in a, a window of maybe four or five days where infection could happen, you can increase that to, you know, this year probably there were fields that were over two weeks. And, and so that just means that the likelihood is, is higher. What happened in 18 was we actually had a not bad spring. It's just that around that time that after pollination, we were wet, we were relatively cool, high humidity. And so rather than those silks drying up in four to five days, they dried up in seven to eight days. So it massively extended the window, plus the conditions were very conducive for the release of the spores from the soil for that infection to happen. So, but then the other thing that really kind of bit us in 18 was if we stressed the plant and we shortened up the uh, cob, uh, and that's why you always saw worse ear mold on the headlands, those shorter cobs, they had longer husks. And if those husks stay tight, and, and the disease is in there, it just makes that perfect environment for them to spread. Yeah, because that was like, a, like it seemed like, I think it was, yeah, 18 seemed like gibberellum, and I think it was two years that before was, that, 16, it was cutworm that was the toxin uh, and, catalyst. And yes, exactly. And then, and then I think the, the, the toxins that were associated, or the disease that was associated with 16 was, was fusarium, uh, like true fusarium graminarium, and, and that produces typically a, a much more toxic byproduct than, than gibberella does. And so that's, you know, you probably saw that, right? In 18, guys were still feeding four or five part per million and, and you know, with minimal problems, whereas in 16, you know, if you got over two, basically your whole herd started to, you know, going downhill with, without adding in something. Well, that makes a lot of sense because I, yeah, like you said, we had, we seen corns in the twenties and 18, like 20 parts, 25 parts per million. And even some stuff that you couldn't even, the mills couldn't even, uh, couldn't even register a test on. And it seemed to feed fine. Like the cows in a lot of places didn't even skip a beat. And, uh, it would just, it kind of puzzled me a little bit and like why two years ago when we were running one and a half parts, are we seeing all these issues? And this year we're running, you know, five, six, eight parts per million on a TMR. And we're not really seeing seeing any uh, adverse effects to it, so that's interesting. Well, so what I, I did some research on that, and, and so I've tried to, you know, I'm a simple guy, so I've simplified in my own mind. But basically, if you imagine that, if you detect the uh, one of those bomb related toxins, it's going to light up, uh, you know, a bulb. And I guess there are a total of six different toxins that will make that light, you know, turn on. I guess in eighteen we had kind of the the bottom of the barrel, you know, not kind of more benign, if you will, whereas in 16, we had the, uh, you know, the granddaddies, if you will, of, of causing problems. And that's the biggest challenge because, yeah, in the lab, they could tell you exactly what that toxin is, but there's so many different toxins. I mean, you'd have to bring your wallet and, and just stand there with a full line of credit. Cause, and I'm not sure that it makes a heck of a lot of difference on your guys' end. You know, is, is there binder specific to a toxin or is it just kind of linked to, to bomb, if you will, right? Yeah, they're not really specific. They'll just they buy the vom and and whatever molds and yeah. So it's not it's not like you could take a targeted approach to uh, this will attach that attach to this this will attach to that. I mean, some are better at it, but it's not. It's more of a shotgun approach than a than a rifle approach, right? So that, that's it, right? And 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 you know, without trying to be that negative guy, but I mean, let's let's be honest. We are uh, you know we're out in the field. We're looking at stuff. We are seeing stuff. We did get. Uh, a late western bean cutworm flight so when we were out there you know at scouting time we were finding moths in the traps but we were having a hard time finding eggs i was into a couple fields yesterday and you know shoot 
but yeah, sure enough, there's a little bit of some chewing at the tip and associated with that is a little bit of that early buzz. So, um, you know, the silage is going to come off, it, it, you know, or it is off, so, so it'll be what it is. But when you start seeing that, you kind of have to say, hey, did you guys start seeing anything in the feed or, or anything in, in the barn that, that's making you scratch your head? Get a test, get a test, get a test, figure out what you got. You know, for you guys on the formulating end and everything like that, be aware that, you know, I don't think we're anywhere near 2018 bad, but to say we're at zero, just not the case. And then the other thing, you know, anyone that's putting up high moisture or maybe has some hogs or something else, uh, walk those fields, you know, and I'm not talking open up two or three years, go down the road, pretend you're a rabid raccoon, and just open up year after year after year and look, do you see any signs of anything? Because if you do, uh, maybe you got another field that doesn't have that and that might be a better one. Because again, when you put it in the feed, you're dealing with it for the next year. So um, I'm not up here to, to say, hey, you know, let's let ring the bell and, and sound the alarm and, and get all scared. But let's be realistic that there are going to be some pockets out there and, and we are starting to find them the more we look and the more years we open. Yeah, and I, and I did some toxin testing when we did our chipper days a couple of weeks ago or three weeks ago now. And it was really, really low. Um, most of it was under uh, 0.25 or oh, undetectable perfect. and we I had one at 0.3 and that was kind of in the uh, kind of north uh, East Lambton and West uh, Middlesex areas so well like I said I, when you see it a little bit you know I still got the the, the shell shock of, of 2018 so it's, it's one that's always kind of just burned in the back of my head yeah and like you said 18 didn't seem to be as bad as uh, like from a animal health uh, standpoint or production standpoint is 16 did and there was way lower levels in 16 than there was in 18. Yeah so you know anyways you know I guess time will tell but um, you know if, if we're at least thinking about it being proactive I, I think that gives us uh, the upper hand because I think 16 kind of caught us with our pants down and, and 18 kind of did too because we'd never seen levels that high and it took us a while to figure out that like you say it, it wasn't as disastrous at least from a uh, an animal perspective. That's great information there and uh that's why we wanted you on. Um, we did get off topic a little bit there, which is awesome. I think we had some really good information there. I think where we were on the kind of top five was, I think you had just finished number two. So do you want to keep rolling down that? No, uh, sure. I, I, I think the uh, the next one that, uh, and without trying to, to slam any, uh, any dairy farmers, because it, it does very much the same as it does with any other farm, is, is weed control. As I mentioned, you know, in a previous life, I, I worked in agrochem research. I was kind of the... Uh, the Eastern herbicide lead. So that's a topic that's very uh, dear to my heart. Um, one of the things I do find on, on dairy farms is, is that, um, you know, the, the, the barn is, is where the, uh, the focus is as it should be. So I'm not, uh, not trying to throw stones, but uh, one of the things I do find with, with dairy farms is that often the weed control happens later than, um, than ideal. And, and again, it's just stressing that point that if we have any weed competition early in the plant's life, and again, you have to remember that the new research says that a corn plant can actually detect, like basically see a weed next to it based on the reflected light. Um, and when that happens, we are basically, the plant says, hey, I've got competition. Rather than making this great big cob, I'm going to back it off a bit because I don't think I'm going to have all the resources to fill it. So you know, dairy farms have the ability to just bang out some fantastic yields with all the fertility, with all the beautiful soil, with the rotation. Um, you know, we'd hate to see that that top end get missed with, with some weed control. And, and again, you know, there's hay to do and there's all these other things. But, um, 
boy, you just remember that at three leaf, once that corn's at three leaf, you do not want anything green in that field other than corn. So that's just my my little plug, and, and that goes right across the spectrum, be it you know what what whatever type of corn uh, farmer you are. But um, again, it just seems that sometimes dairy farms get get a little bit uh, pulled away at other things, and they still grow some very very good corn. I just like to always think how much it could have been or what it could have been if, if we had gotten that weed control a little earlier. Um, I guess we talked a bit on on the um, you know the vomit toxins, everything else like that, and that kind of ties into my fourth point, which is is to test. Um, you know, you guys run those chipper days. I think that is just fantastic. I've always been amazed at how fast you can get the turnaround because to me, that's probably one of the biggest things, you know, we always talk about what corn we should use for, for a silage. Boy, if you can get the moisture right and the timing right, any corn will make great silage. Um, you know, maybe I'm, I'm not doing myself any favors in trying to sell silage varieties, but, uh, you know, if you get the moisture right in, in, in the right stage, it's going to make great feed regardless. So make sure you test, make sure you know where you are and, you know, get out there, walk that field, have a look at the plant health. You know, we talked about the frost, that frost is making that moisture drop far quicker than, than normal. But, uh, you know, normally we're, we're talking half a point to three quarters of a point a day and, um, you know, healthier plants, they might be a little bit slower. Plants have a little more stress, might be quicker. But if we can get it right where you want it to be, you know, be that, you know, the, the 62 in, in an upright or, or the, the 67, 68 in a bunk, um, get it at the right moisture and, and you're just going to have so much better feed. So that's a big one for me is, is doing that testing. And then lastly, I don't make any money. I don't have anything to do with it, but I am a big inoculant fan. The last couple of years where we've had some of this frost, I think we've really just kicked the tar out of our, uh, our native lactobacillus population. If we can get some of these inoculants in and help, and then even that, when we're relying on, on nature to provide the, um, you know, those bugs for us, you just never know what you're going to get. At least when you use an inoculant, you know what you've got. I always say, right, you, you, you can't manage what you can't measure, and we can't measure what the native population is when we inoculate. Yep, we know what we put on. We put on the right amount. So I guess those would be my, my uh, kind of quick top five for, uh, for silage and just, you know, good things to keep in the back of our mind as we think about the uh, 2021 crop. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the inoculant because I had a colleague of mine, uh, they actually pulled some yeast uh, tests out of the corn standing in the field and they were through the roof. Like we're talking 24, 20, 24 million CFUs already on corn that hasn't even hit the silo yet. So anything we can do to help preserve that corn uh, when we put it back in there, I think is just going to gonna help us unfeed out for the, rest of the, for the rest of the year. Have you ever heard of purple leaf sheath? No. So if you ever get into a cornfield and you'll see where the, the leaf attaches to the, uh, to the stalk and you'll sometimes get that bruise. It'll take that purpley to almost black color. And what that is, that is where all the pollen has accumulated. And that pollen, you know, that missed the silks, it's basically just sugar for all intents and purposes. And that is where the, uh, the yeast, that's what causes that purpling and you know, it's yeast, it's, it's basically just a cosmetic thing from, from an agronomy perspective, but that is where those yeasts are just going to absolutely explode. And I don't know how many fields you guys were into around pollen time for an agronomist. That's a great time to be in the field, you know, evaluating the, the different uh, hybrids, but I have never come out more yellow than I did this year. So I think you're bang on. I, I, it makes perfect sense why we're seeing so much yeast because we just had so much food for them in that pollen. It all got in those leaf axles and, and they just had a party. 
eating all that uh, beautiful uh, pollen. Yeah, I know. I'd love to go in at pollinating time, but uh, I, I'm afraid my allergies would explode on me. So we had a summer student that was allergic. <laughs> Turned into the yeah. elephant man. Horrible. Yeah, I could. Uh, I could usually tell that the corn's pollinating about three to four days before you actually uh, before you see it. So. Uh, one thing on the inoculant and the frost there, like, do you want to touch on that a little bit? If it, if we have some uh, frost damage silage, uh, what impact is inoculant going to have in improving that situation? Yeah, so this, this is probably, you know, some stuff that you guys will know better than I do. But some of the research I did uh, last year where, you know, if you remember how, how late the harvest got, we were getting quite late and we'd already had a couple kisses of frost. And there was some research that I found out of the States that basically said, most of that native population that's going to ferment our silage lives on the leaves. And when you kill those leaves with a, with a frost, you are also killing those bacteria. And so, you know, now numbers are hard, but they were basically saying you could, and, and in research when they say you could, they're always trying to scare you a bit. So I'm not sure if I take it full uh, face value, but you could reduce the, uh, the native population by as much as 80%. So, you know, if you want to have, pick your number, right? 100,000 CFUs per kilogram of silage, and you're down to 20,000. That's a big, big, big difference. And so what happens is if you don't have them there, you're not going to drop that pH fast enough. Your yeast are going to take over. You're going to lose all that readily available sugar. And um, as well, you know, again, not my world, but just listening at that top our uh, conferences and whatnot is, you know, the faster you can get it down and get it stabilized, the, the better. Um, and just the better it's going to feed because the longer it takes, the, uh, the more of those bad byproducts and, and the more time for, uh, you know, the yeast and all those, those negative uh, microbes to, uh, to chew away and, and steal the good stuff. Because the goal is with the lactobacillus, they're not producing CO2. As soon as your silage pile is making CO2, that's basically your sugar going up the uh, chimney. Okay. And that's probably a bastardization of all the, the science and smart stuff that you guys do. But in, in, in my simple agronomy world, that's how I look at it. Well, as a feed guy, I look at it a little more simple way. It's that the natural bacteria eat sugar and poop out lactic acid, right? And that's what dro- really drops your, uh, that's what really does the pH drop. And uh, I know I, years ago, I talked to uh, to a silage guy or silage person, sorry. And uh, that was their thing. Like, just make sure that you do have a good inoculant on with this frost damage stuff, because uh, a lot of that natural, naturally occurring lactic acid uh, producing bacteria will be... Uh, will be killed or, or injured or at least uh, kind of knocked back. So, Yeah, and that's what we're seeing, you know, we're, especially some of those areas that are uh, were, were drought-stricken. Um, you know, the lower leaves kind of got burnt up. And, and, you know, I don't know this for sure if, if, if they don't hold as many um, of those lactobacillus bacteria, but I got to assume they, they don't because there's really nothing for them to eat. And then if we frost it down quite a bit, we just have that much less green tissue for, you know, our native population to be there. So... Again, I, you know, when you look at the cost of it, it's, it's pretty small in the grand scheme of things. Again, I don't sell it. I'm not, the, I'm not trying to spend anybody else's money, but um, any of the numbers I've ever seen just, you know, there's not a lot of no-brainers in our industry, and, and it sure looks like about as close to one as there is that I've seen. Yeah, it's, a, it's like an insurance policy, and I mean, you're going to make your payback just on dry matter recovery alone. So, Well, with that, let's start with... Uh... What are the top three things a farmer should keep in mind when purchasing seed for next year's corn silage, Drew? I'm not sure I want to go through the, uh, the top three. I think to me, I, I just want to focus on the, the number one. And, and 
what I've always found is to help a farmer get the most out of his corn is to have the conversation with both, or I guess maybe three ways is, is the seed rep, the nutritionist and the farmer, because it varies so, so much. If you've got one of these herds that's on a limited land base, and you know it's hard to grow a lot of acres of hay and you've got a really really high silage um, ration you know let's say you're 80 percent plus uh, silage in, in in the feed you're probably going to want a different type of corn than someone that's maybe only running in that 55 percent right and i guess what i'm getting at there is if you've got 80 85 percent silage in in the um in a TMR and, and you're throwing in a dual purpose that has crazy high grain content, you're going to probably run into some issues. Um, you know, that's a situation where maybe you want to look at one of these leafy types or something like that. But if you're somebody that, um, you know, doesn't have high moisture corn or anything else like that, you know, maybe you do have to change it. And so it's, it's so crucial to make sure that everybody knows what, um, what the end goal is because a lot of guys, Hey, I just want to see lots of, you know, black smoke when the harvester goes through there. Yeah. We got a corn for that, but is that ultimately going to be the most profitable on your farm, you know, making milk for the, for the next year. So that's my number one. Right. And, and I guess if you say, what's the top three, the top three is having the three right people there. And, and, you know, obviously you want to have that nutritionist that, that you got a good relationship, same on, on that, uh, that seed rep in, but I think when you do that, that's going to be, be my number one. Cause you've, then you can figure out, all right, well maybe based on your set goals for the barn, I've got three or four different varieties that are going to work for you. Then we can, you know, start to, uh, to select those down to, to one that, that, you know, kind of fits your maturity or, or fits your management style, your plant to date, et cetera. But when we don't know what the ultimate goal is and, and, you know, my hope is that they're talking to you about it. As a seed rep, we're lucky if we get that information, but boy, we can really make some, some big changes in, in what we'd suggest when we have that information versus if we're just going in guessing. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the questions from the uh, Twitter poll that we ask is, like the question I asked was, this does this year's crop performance influence next year's hybrid selection? And actually 73% of the producers said, yeah. And then another uh, 24% of the producers were just worried about getting a free Yeti out of it. So. Yeah. Listen, you, if, if you're not getting a hat or a pen or something, a Yeti might be something different, but, uh, yep. yeah, I, I, uh, that, that's not the way to do it. Um, but that said, you know, if you ever see my red Dodge going up and down the road, flag me down, I've, I've got swag in the back. <laughs> and just to clarify, the DFD is not giving out free Yetis. <laughs> Could be a good <laughs> promo. Yeah. I'll take one too. But you know, that's it, right? Like when, a, when, when a producer finds a corn that is making his cow's milk or her cows or whoever it is, cow's milk, um, you know, they don't want to change it. The problem in the seed world is, is that, you know, there's not a lot of genetics or varieties that are lasting, you know, beyond five, six years. It takes the first couple of years to get guys convinced that they are worth looking at. And, and then, you know, things will change. I think the average life cycle of a, of a hybrid in the States is, is under three years. So, you know, those, those are the things that are, are so frustrating to the dairy farmers. And, and as a seed rep, it frustrates me as well. But you know, there are some products out there that are tried, tested, and true. They may not always win the tonnage, but they win the performance. And, and 
you know, when we know what they're shooting for, we, we can suggest one of those varieties. And, and there are some varieties that are going to be around for a while just because of the fact that they're, you know, they're so consistent and so proven on the, uh, on the dairy farm and, and in the, uh, the feed. Yeah, I know. And it's one of those things that I record when we do our uh, chipper days in the fall is like, what's, what variety are you growing? Like what field, what variety? And uh, overwhelmingly about 80% of the corn this year was uh, from one, was one variety. And uh, you know, what we're seeing right now coming off the fields, it's, you know, there's a reason that one variety got, a lot of it got planted on that, that particular soil type. So for sure, right? And, and, and I guess that's my, you know, we, we've got a couple that we really like to, to promote into that, what we call the dual purpose. And, and for me, the biggest thing, as I said earlier, you know, we want to make sure that, that um, that's in the right moisture, the right stage. And, and that's, you know, I like plants that have a lot of stay green and plant health late in the year, because I want that ear to get as close to black layer as possible, because that maximizes your starch. But I also want a plant that's going to hold some moisture so that, you know, you don't only have, you know, a 24 hour window to, to get it off at the, the right moisture for, uh, for proper fermentation. So again, you know, there's that, but again, these, there's these barns that are on the, uh, the extreme ends of how much silage they're putting in and what they're doing. And, uh, you know, th- those are the questions. If we know that we can, we can really make better recommendations. Cause as I said, right, every, every corn done at the right time can make great feed, but uh, there's some that are just that much more flexible to, uh, to give, you know, the, the, the management of the operation time to get it in under the, you know, as close to perfect as possible. That's great. Uh, great advice and great information there, Drew. Um, one of the other things, and I guess, Keith, you can probably chime in on this just as much as anybody is uh, what are we seeing across the province for uh, corn silages coming off? So have you seen some samples come back, Drew or Keith for that matter? And, uh, and what are we seeing so far for what's coming back? So I can touch on that if you want. I, I, um, I've done uh, a couple silage plots so far and, and we just got our analysis back from the, uh, from the lab. I guess a couple trends that are, are popping up, some good, some bad. Um, starches are lower than, uh, than normal. Uh, that makes sense. You know, that hot, dry stretch in, in July, kind of when you're, fig- you know, the plant's trying to figure out how big it wants to make the cob in terms of length. Uh, they're not as long as we maybe want them to be. They're, they're definitely, you know, five to eight rows shorter than, than normal. So we are seeing a slight pullback on the, uh, on the starch. Um, proteins are a little bit lower, maybe a point lower. I've never viewed silage as a, as a big protein source, but, you know, if you're normally seven and a half and we're seeing a lot of analysis come back at six and a half, yeah, that, that's going to, you know, factor in. And that, again, would seem to be right across uh, varieties and brands. Um, the other one though, that this on, on a more positive note is at least, you know, in the labs that we use the, uh, the ADF and the NDF came right in, you know, bang on normal. And, and that's a great thing because my biggest fear when you go into a stress type year, and we definitely had some stress periods is the plants tend to, uh, to lay down more fiber when that happens. And, and you typically see a spike, um, particularly in the ADF and, and, and that just hasn't seemed to shown up in the, uh, dozen or so samples that I've seen to date so um, that that leaves me feeling uh, feeling pretty good um, you know starch we can probably manage with with the high moisture or whatnot but uh, those would be the, the, the first trends that I saw looking at you know the last couple of weeks worth of silage uh, plots. Yeah and I guess I'd have to say I'm a little bit on the opposite side of that because uh, the few samples that I've seen come back in you know they're sitting in that 
low twenties, high teens for ADF, which is on our end is kind of an indicator on how much grains there. And, you know, we're looking at some 37 to 42% starches coming off right now. Um, in the kind of, I'm more based in kind of Western Middlesex and uh, Northeast Lambton or Lambton County and, and Southern Huron and Perth. And, uh, the corn was stressed in a lot of places just prior to uh, pollination. And then the, the taps opened up and it's rained quite a lot. So we don't have in a lot of places, it's not overly tall corn, but it's got some good, good ears on it. And it looks like it was, uh, it was headed to be some really great grain, um, test weight anyways. And then, uh, mother nature decided to intervene with some frost. So that might knock it back a little bit, but in general, I, I think it's a pretty good looking, uh, silage analysis coming off. Well, that's good to hear. Cause like I said, I know the two that I had were, were done earlier than normal just because of the, you know, the, the stress shutting them down. But, um, yeah, definitely the, the starches were lower. So again, that's the, that's the problem with, with, you know, asking two people is where, where are they in the world? Cause I hear you guys up in, uh, parts of your territory you did very well for rain whereas a lot of mine you know were under half of, of normal so it's it's yeah that plays a big role yeah and i mean like where i am here we've we haven't looked back like we were we were cruising into some uh record yields by the looks of it and and i was looking at the uh, great lakes green uh pro tour there and uh i know our area was pretty high uh, on the grain yield which you know some some of my friends are cash croppers too and that's what they were seeing as well you know as i go north into my territory there were some areas there that were pretty drought stressed but never it, it got a little bit hairy there in july and uh, we were starting to get worried but then uh yeah the taps opened up and and we haven't looked back since then so no, which is good for a silage like i like i don't mind if it gets a little bit of uh stress on it during uh june and july it seems like the fiber uh, digestibility is a little bit higher that way so i would say we're seeing similar results here as well up in the fergus guelph area we uh we did have a pretty pretty good summer overall and as i think i've mentioned that on some of the previous episodes and i think what we're seeing come off the fields is is a reflection of that so uh it's it's been not too bad up here to say say the least we have talked about fungicides on some of the previous episodes but i wondered if you want to just uh, give us your quick two cents on that drew and uh thoughts and whatnot on that yeah, so I, I, you know, just to make sure we throw it out there, I, I did work in, in egg cam research. And so although I did predominantly have the, the herbicide lead, I played quite a bit in, in fungicides. So I do like them. I, I definitely see the value. Challenge with them is, is that they are, you know, they have to be used preventatively. So, you know, in, in walking fields, and I'm sure you guys have been the same, overall the crop was very clean in, in terms of disease. Um, but what we do find with a lot of the fungicides is they have that, that extra attribute, that plant health component, you know, above and beyond just disease control kind of keeps the plants greener, juicier, longer. And, and that's always been a big one. You know, we always targeted that silage acre that if we could keep the plant a little bit greener, a little bit wetter, longer, and get that cob closer to black layer, as opposed to that traditional, although I don't think anybody does it anymore, you know, 50% milk line, but you know, if you go from 50% milk line to black layer, you know, you're almost adding four to 5% more yield and all that yield is in the kernel. So that's the good stuff that you want. So I do like it in that regard. But what I'm seeing right now from more maybe a cash crop or a grain perspective is, is that um, it's also keeping the plant a, a little bit wetter and, and slowing our, our you know, when we are hitting black layer. This is purely antidotal. I don't have any data to back it up, but 
you know, we've got some 2,800 heat unit corn planted early and that area is almost 3,000 heat units and I don't have a black layer. And that doesn't matter what bag it came out of. So something funny is going on. And, and so I guess what I would say, if you are using a fungicide, I like it. That's a great idea. But if you're one of those producers that likes to really swing for the fences with a full, full season dual uh, purpose type hybrid, you know, that selection of longer maturity is probably bringing you that, that additional uh, moisture later in the season. Combining that with a fungicide, boy, I think we're setting ourselves up for, uh, for some issues, especially now that we've had an early frost. It kind of reminds us that we can get caught. So I like it. I think it works, but, uh, but I don't think it's a, uh, you know, blanket. You, you got to use it as a uh, thing, you know, made the, the analysis before, you know, a rifle as opposed to a shotgun, you know, use it with precision and, and it's going to work well. When you use it as a shotgun, you know, you set yourself up to get burnt. And I know from my end, that's one of the comments that people really didn't want to get rolling at silage. And because, uh, oh, look at the plant, it's so green. But when you started running it through harvesters and doing dry matters on it, you know, it was already sitting in that low 60s or uh, like high 30s for uh, moisture dry matter. And uh, it was ready to go. So that was last week before it froze. And my concern is now it just might dry down a little bit quicker than what uh, producers were anticipating. But luckily enough, it seems like it, it hasn't, but we haven't had those hot, windy days until maybe today um, to kind of push that crop along farther. But uh, I know from my producers, and most of them will be done uh, silage here by Monday, Tuesday. It's sitting on Wednesday right now. So um, I think they're going to be in pretty good shape. Just from your perspective, Drew, like you're coming at it more from the uh, crop side probably than we are, even though we're talking a lot of crops with our producers right now as well. Uh, just wondered if there was some common questions uh, you're being asked out on the road there yourself, uh, just around silage probably predominantly right now. Yeah, and I think, you know, with silage, you know, the question always comes back to corn. The question is always, what are you seeing? Uh, you know, is there anything out there that we need to be worried about? And, you know, the fact is I'm, I'm covering a wider swath of, of the territory. Farmers will walk their fields, but they won't necessarily walk their neighbor's fields and, and a lot of farmers scout with the truck not with the not actually get into the field so that's been the big one just what so that's what i've been trying to pass on you know what are we seeing for plant health a lot of questions around did a fungicide pay or not this year you don't know till the combine or the harvester runs with you know with the side by side and then a lot around you know you seen any any uh, pink in there from from the ear mold are you seeing any western bean cutworms so i think you know that quality seems to be driving right at the top i think you know like you made mention of the uh, the great lakes grain they do a fantastic job in, in, in sort of giving a, a a snapshot of how the industry looks um so there, there seems as though guys are, are buying in believing that you know i don't get bugged by that as much as i did four or five years ago but uh, quality, that seems to be the number one aspect always is, is are we seeing anything that we need to be worried about? And again, that makes great sense, right? Because if the problem goes into the bunk, you're dealing with it the, the rest of the year. So touch wood so far, you know, nothing's perfect, but uh, we're a lot closer to perfect than we have been in other years. Is that something that happens a lot, Drew, as you do side-by-sides on fungicide? I know I actually picked up samples out of producers this morning where they did a double application versus no application at all. And uh, we're just going to, we're going to put the samples beside each other and they've got weights because they ran it over a scale. So we're going to kind of get an idea if it does pay or not. But is that something that you see out there a lot on silage more so than uh, with the combine? Yeah. So, so in silage, it's, it's hard to find, um, you know, because of the fact, two things. One, 
is is a lot of the silage and again you know shout out to the to the good uh, production practices of the dairy farmer it's hard even with some of these high boys and whatnot to get into a 12 foot uh, silage crop so more and more going in with uh, with aerial what you got to remember with aerial is you might have a 30 foot boom underneath of that helicopter but that 30 foot boom is doing a 60 to 80 foot swath right because it, it doesn't come out it, it rolls and it moves so it's probably impossible to leave an accurate untreated check with a uh, with an aerial versus the ground rig um and then you know getting silage plots off is always a big enough pain in the backside with uh, you know, the way pads and everything else uh some of these harvesters that that have the ability to uh, to waste up up and, and give some numbers that does help but when i was in research you know doing uh, a couple uh, we launched a couple uh, fungicides when, when i was still in the research role and and we were able to get some of those and actually you know the the increase uh, in, in silage kind of made the, the, the increase in grain look like chump change, um, you know, both in terms of, uh, of, of overall starch and, and, and whatnot, but always kept it a little bit wetter. That's always the challenge, right? So if you're a little bit wetter, you probably should have been cut a couple of days later. So that was always our recommendation. Spray half your acres, start on the unsprayed. And then, you know, if it takes you a week to take your harvest or your silage off, you know, you're, uh, you move to the, um, the fungicide treated stuff that keeps you in the sweet spot for that period. So um, there is data that does exist, but it is, uh, it's far and few between. Yeah. I'll have to preface that we did. Uh, it was done and put on with a, uh, a self-propelled sprayer. It wasn't done aerially and it'll be interesting. We'll be able to relate it because they have the, uh, oh, I forget what it's called on the deer, but it, they are using a yield map. So that's actually that's measuring how much pressure is coming into the machine. So they are trying to map it a bit, but. I'm not sure how accurate that is. Uh, you know what? It should give you a good a good reference. I mean, what we were typically seeing is is you were right around that that uh, additional ton to ton and a quarter of of uh, material. Um, you know, and, and I don't know what number you like to use, but typically a, a ton of silage is somewhere around eight, maybe eight and a half bushel of grain. And so, yeah, you know, it, it does uh, that that kind of coincides with with the grain increase. So. I would hope that one of those machines should be able to pick up, you know, if you're averaging in the low twenties for, for tonnage, that's a 5% increase. I would hope a machine like that could pick it up and, and, and map it out for you. Yeah, that's kind of our thought. So we're going to do it, work it all back to dry matter and then put the sample beside each other and look at, you know, our starches, uh, look at fibers, things like that, look at milk breaker and, and go off that. But um, it's hard to, uh, I, I think the farm's just trying to make a decision on whether it makes sense to put out, uh, fungicide on everything or not so so kind of as we close up here a little bit drew like what are some of the good things you're seeing out there this year as far as silage goes are, are guys making improvements are they uh, taking the advice of some of the people that are, are giving the recommendations and, and making some uh, positive changes and what are you seeing out there as a result yeah you know what as I, as I said kind of my, my top five uh, the one thing that really blew my mind this year was the um, the uptake of the chipper days uh you know i know i had the opportunity to join you at a couple and you know when years gone by you know you kind of had that that uh, slow drip of, of of people coming in uh this year it was it was pretty steady there was lots so to me that that's huge you know was that linked to covid and everyone was kind of all uh, locked up and there was a chance to get out and, and socialize maybe a bit of that but um, to me, that's a good thing. You know, I think guys realize, and again, last year we, we probably put up some feed that wasn't right in the, in the right moisture and probably had some challenges over the, uh, 
you know, the past year. So to me, that that's a big one. I think kudos to you guys for, for those chipper days and, and kudos to the farmers for taking advantage of the uh, the ability to test and, and know what you're putting into the bunk or into the bag or into the silo, whatever the case may be. Yeah, that's some good points there, Drew. And, and I guess to that, what is one of the uh, worst practices I guess you're seeing out there that, uh, you know, you would hope that uh, farmers could change or help prevent next year? Well, it, it's, it's, it's probably a big one, but it's, it's probably manure. Um, and it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a multi pronged, uh, um, issue, I suppose. One is we're probably feeling like we've got a gun at our head and maybe in some cases we do. And, and whenever we put manure onto the soil, that's not fit. It is haunting us. And, you know, you get more and more of these, these aerial images, be it drones, be it satellites, whatever. When you can start seeing manure tracks, you have cost yourself a lot of yields, both in terms of, you know, total tonnage, but also, you know, to the, we talked about earlier, just the variability, the plant that had to go through that tight soil is not going to be at the same stage as, as the plant that was in the tire tracks, if you will. So, so that's one, you know, again, it's a tough one, but, um, you know, making the plans, you know, even though it pains me to say this, maybe having some cereals in your rotation to have that window to, to put the manure out. Um, and then I think on the other side of that, though, is I think a lot of dairy farmers are not giving the manure the full value, the full credit that it can provide them. And, you know, when you talk to a dairy farmer and, you know, ask, ah, what did you do? You know, maybe we did a plot with them. What was the fertility of it? And they're still putting on 180, 200 pounds of commercial fertilizer in terms of nitrogen. And then, you know, you find out that they put on 8,000 gallons of liquid manure in the fall you know, holy 80s. Again, I don't sell fertilizer and I'm not trying to, uh, to throw anyone that does sell fertilizer under the bus, but boy, that manure gave you some credit. And, you know, the cash crop guys, that's, they're, they're the ones using the, the, the 200 pounds of nitrogen and they would love to get their hands on an organic source. I think that's a big thing that, that we could definitely improve on is, is, you know, sharpen our pencil and figure out what we are getting out of it. It's going to save us some money. It's good for the environment. And, and actually, when you look at... Um, you know, any yield response to nitrogen, once you go over the magical, you know, ideal point, the yield starts to drop. And I wonder if there's some dairy farms that are actually reducing their yield by, by over fertilizing with nitrogen. So to me, those, those are, a, those are a couple big ones. That's great. I, we appreciate that information. Um, Keith, I know you briefly touched on the Twitter poll there. Do you want to just uh, highlight the numbers there one more time and just go over what, uh, what we're seeing out there from the producers listening in? Yeah, so it looks like uh, about uh, 59%, 60% uh, silage seems to be ongoing right now and about 40% done with the Twitter polls. We had uh, uh, 70 people vote on that one. So I I think that might give us a good idea of kind of what we're seeing out there uh, across the province right now. And I would would say so. I would say we're right in the thick of it right now and uh, kind of trending on the backside of it. And hopefully uh, a lot of places will be wrapped up by, uh, you know, midweek next week. Uh, talking to some producers right now that put up uh, some cob meal and some high moisture corn, they're going to roll right into silage. You know, hopefully finish up by the weekend and and start right into the start right into the cob meals and the high moisture corn. So I know I uh, I seen a combine in a field over by Park Hill yesterday. So I don't know if they were out of pig feed or or if they're just putting some high moisture up or what was going. But I noticed that uh, being an ex grain cart driver myself, it was standing up pretty good in the buggy, so it looked pretty wet. So, I have not seen a combine with a corn head on yet, although there's been lots of questions if anyone has seen it, so I'll have to uh, pass that on uh, that the, the first one is out there. Yeah, and it, I mean, the corn, like the plant was 
you know, definitely froze off and it, it looked kind of half green and I just couldn't believe like the, the combine, it didn't, the buggy was moving and the pile wasn't leveling out at all. So I was like, that's pretty wet. <laughs> well, I don't know if you trust the weather, you know, forecasters any more than I do, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, I know my in-laws anyways, I think it's the first time ever that they silage that they haven't had to run the loader down the road and scrape all the mud off. So, um, it's been a pretty nice stretch of weather. It does sound like we're going to get wet there by, uh, you know, say Sunday, Monday. And, uh, you know, that'll remind us why that maybe swinging for the fence with maturity on silage isn't the greatest thing. It's a lot more fun to take silage off when the ground's dry. Well, isn't that just a characteristic of that Haldeman and clay? It just sticks to everything. It, it, it does. Uh, we have strong legs here because whenever you walk that field, you can <laughs> But yeah, I wouldn't want to walk in my, uh, I got some rubber boots with some deep lugs. I'm not sure if I'd want to do field walks in Haldeman County in those. Maybe right before hockey season. That's it. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate your time today, Drew. Uh, I know it was a little bit short notice, but uh, a lot of amazing, really good information there for farmers to take into consideration. And um, we really appreciate that time. Did, uh, did either of you guys have some final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners today? I just want to say thanks for the opportunity. Always enjoy uh, talking uh, shop, if you will, and, and crops. And, and I guess the biggest thing, you know, this is a uh, busy time of year and everyone's running crazy. Just remind everyone to be safe. And, and uh, you know, it's the uh, most important thing is to make sure that you're there tomorrow to get the job done. So be safe, everyone. But again, thanks very much for the opportunity. Yeah, and I think I'll just uh, echo Drew's uh, statement there and just stay safe, everybody. Uh, I know it's a busy season right now with uh, – you know, hay and then uh, corn silage and grain harvest and manure and fall tillage and planting wheat and everything. It just seems like this is September's and early October's generally about the busiest in farm country, much more than spring, I feel. And uh, yeah, just stay safe out there, everybody. Great. Well, thanks again to both you guys, Andrew and Keith, for your insights today. I I really do think there was some great information there that farmers can use and apply. And uh, we look forward to talking with you guys again soon. And uh, thanks for your time and good luck out there for you that are still, uh, still getting the field work done. Thanks for now. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in this week. We really are trying to keep this podcast product and ad free. However, if you have any questions about what you've been hearing, we strongly recommend reaching out to your nearest SureGain dealership. We have reps across Ontario, Canada, and the USA that would love to come to your farm and offer solutions to those problems that have been keeping you from achieving your goals. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you think might benefit from this information or on your social media platform of choice. I also encourage you to tune into Keith Schweitzer's YouTube channel. We'll be releasing podcast episodes every other Thursday, and Keith will be releasing YouTube videos on the opposite weeks. We appreciate your support and look forward to sharing with you real soon.